the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. It's just a small one-chapter letter just before the book of Revelation. Someone asked if we're going to still cover one chapter every week as we go through Revelation. Probably not, just so you know. We're going to maybe slow things down a little bit. I'm going to try and slow things down. I actually heard uh, one of our Bible studies, one of the guys at work was listening to the Bible study here. And I came in and I'm like, are you playing that at a higher speed? It sounds really fast. He goes, nope, that's you. I'm like, so I'm going to try and maybe not talk quite so fast. <laughs> All right, Jude. So Jude uh, was a leader in the early church uh, in his life, even when he, especially when he was an older man. He's going to identify himself here as the brother of James, which means that he is the brother of or half-brother of Jesus. Um, interesting, Scripture tells us in the Gospels that his family did not believe in him. His mom did, but his brothers and sisters did not believe until after the cross and after his resurrection. And, and honestly, I've got some compassion on Jude and James. Can you imagine how hard it was to be raised in the house with Jesus? Right? And mom always going, why, don't you, why can't you do what your brother Jesus does? Why aren't you like him? And, and, you know, Jesus never complains. Jesus never rolls his eyes. Jesus does the dishes when he's told. And so I'm sure Jude and, Jude and James are like, oh, no, Jesus, Jesus is perfect. And, and he was. <laughs> you, can't, you couldn't even argue with that. So after all of that, James believed. We don't know when Jude came along, but he also became a believer, and as I said, a leader in the early church. As far as the time that this was written, um, it's somewhere around, like if you're trying to think the timeline of Scripture that we've been going through, somewhere around 2 Peter. And there's, there's some question whether it was written just before or just after. And, and people make a big deal about it that uh, because there's so many similarities between Jude and 2 Peter. They use the same terms they uh, even use some of the same poetic types of descriptions of things. And so people will make a big, big deal about it and say, well, okay, uh, Jude wrote his letter first and Peter ripped it off, or vice versa. It wasn't anything like that. One of them probably read the other letter and went, man, this is a powerful message and I need to get it out as well. Because the situation that Peter was dealing with and that Jude was dealing with was false teachers making their way into the church. And this is a topic that we hit a lot. You know, I think uh, it's about this time when people are like, okay, I get it, right? I mean, we've talked so much about false teachers and, and what they do and what they're like. But the reason that it's brought up so often, the reason we have this constant reminder is because it's a constant problem. It was a constant problem back then, and it still is today. And the subtlety is the issue. Right? They, they don't show up wearing a sign. They don't show up wearing a shirt, or a shirt that says false prophet or false teacher on it. They're subtle. And so it's this constant reminder. Again, it doesn't call us to be paranoid. It doesn't call us to be constantly on this witch hunt looking for who might be a false teacher. But we are to be aware that this is the situation. And so uh, let's pray and we'll get into the letter of Jude. God, again, we're so thankful for your word, and we pray that you would speak directly to our hearts and apply these things directly to our lives. 
Give us ears to hear that we wouldn't be distracted and drawn away uh, by anything. Lord, that we want everything you have to share with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And we will stop for questions as we go. But as I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, uh, that's going to change next week. And so I'll explain the details on how question and answer is going to change uh, and why to some degree. But we'll stop like usual today. So verse 1 of Jude. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the, the archangel, in his contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam the prophet, for prophet, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So starting uh, out, he wrote this letter, or wanted to write a letter, to encourage. Now this wasn't written to a specific church, but it was probably an area that had many churches in it. So it's really written to the church at large, but he wrote it to an area, and when he wrote it, he wanted to just encourage him, right? That when I set out to write this, it was just to just talk about our common faith and, and encourage, man, isn't the Lord good? And, and isn't it great to belong to him? But something changed. Now, it may have been that he heard something, got a report from what was going on in this certain area, or it was just the leading of the Holy Spirit. But he knew that what he had to actually write was a letter of warning and... Uh, and he sums it up by saying that he's writing them that they must contend earnestly for the faith. The way that that's worded, contend earnestly, the word contend is a wrestling or a combat term, and it's just like it sounds, man. It is, it is a, a scrap. It's getting you know, hands-on with somebody. It's a fight. But when he adds a word earnestly to it, it's the idea of an ongoing perseverance in battle. So it's not a one-time event. It's not even an occasional event. 
The way he's describing it is this is a battle we're entering into that requires ongoing perseverance. We have to stick with it. We have to have endurance in it, not just see it as something like we do once or every once in a while. And, and as I was studying this, one of the things that really popped out to me is, uh, is that he could have really kind of put it on the church at large, right? He could have said, well, it's up to the church to have this contending for the faith. And I think we tend to do that as we, we always look to what someone else should, should be doing, right? Oh, it's up to the pastor to contend for the faith. Oh, it's up to a ministry to contend for the faith. Or this group over there, they'll be the ones to contend for the faith. But he writes this and he makes a point of saying that the reason he's writing to you is to contend for the faith. He individualizes it. He makes it personal. For each one of us, individually, it is up to us to contend for the faith. And, and it can certainly mean the idea of entering into a conflict. Um, you know, the idea, and this is Jude's focus here as he talks about this, you know, that we need to stand against these false teachers. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. Um, I think that's kind of the extreme example. But I think there's a lot of other ways that we contend for the faith on a daily basis, right? Because it doesn't just mean conflict. It just means that we're standing on the faith. We're standing in our faith. And so that can be within our families, within our workplace, within our communities, that we are doing what we can with whatever we've been given, whether physically, spiritually gifting, whatever it might be, that we are contending for the faith in all of those places to reveal the love of Jesus Christ to all those who are around us. That is contending for the faith. Right? It doesn't mean that we're entering into conflict every single time we talk to somebody. In fact, I think we've all known those people, right? There have been times we've been those people. And, and what I found is that those people that drive others away from the Lord, there are some that have a gifting. I actually went to Bible college with this guy, and he was almost like a cartoon character. <laughs> he was like totally square. He was a tank driver in the military, and he still had that kind of military mentality. And this guy would go up to total strangers and be like, hey, man, you need Jesus. And they're like, okay. And, <laughs> and I'm like, well, sure, you're the most intimidating guy I've ever met. You're just a big square muscle. And then you're telling people, you need Jesus, you know, and they're like, oh. But it wasn't really like that. That's kind of how he was initially. But then he would get just talking with them. And then there was a softness he just had this gift to talk to people about Jesus, right? He was a street evangelist. He's one of the few that had that gifting. Other people um, that are just confrontational, they do the opposite, right? They repel, right? I think all of us are called with the giftings we have, with the calling that we have, to contend for the faith. Now, that may be in conflict, but I think more often than not, it's in the day-to-day. It's just loving on those who are around us, right? And I like what um, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking of our gifts and how they're used, what their point is, he says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Man, even if it's just within the church, that counts. In fact, that counts a lot. That is the point of your gifts, that you can just come alongside a brother or sister. doesn't mean you're going up to a stranger on the street, but just coming alongside them to encourage, to edify, to build them up, and to equip them 
for whatever it is they're facing. That's powerful, right? That is contending for the faith. For the faith. And, and I think it's, while it's an individual calling, again, he's writing, you contend for the faith. The fact that it's about our faith, it's unifying. Because he's not talking about a faith like our individual, like, do I believe in Jesus kind of faith. He's talking about the, the faith that we have in the good news of Jesus. It's the unifying faith that brings the entire church together all over the world, right? And that as individuals within the church, we're called to contend for that thing that brings unity among all of us, to stand for it, to stand in it, and, and to speak truth, to bring the good news of Jesus wherever we go, our common faith. Um, and it's important. It's important that we as individuals contend, even if it means entering into conflict, to contend for the faith. Um, and I think a lot of people would say, well, is there even a need? I mean, we live in the United States. Aren't we free? We can just say what we want to say. We're free to gather. We're free to be Christians. It's important that we contend because the, the moment we step back and go, no, there's no need, is the moment we begin to lose that, that right. And I think we've got a good example of what has taken place in the whole COVID situation, of how close it came to us losing some of those rights. And it's, it's funny because it's already blown by. A lot of people don't even think of it anymore. You don't, certainly don't see anything about it in the media. But when they locked down the church, when they locked down everyone else, of course they locked down the church at the same time. But it was different than ever before. Every time in the, in the U.S. history when a tragedy or some horrible event took place, whether it was a war or famine, whatever it might be, the government whether lo- and, and the local government leaned heavily upon the church for help. They were going to the churches and to the pastors, even if it was just to say, we need to use your building. We just need to put people, supplies, stuff but very often, they were also going to the leadership going, we need your help with counseling and with being in the community, being among the people. This was the first time ever that on, all across the board, they went, we don't need you. We don't want you. You are unessential. And that lockdown of the church was so close to an absolute taking away of our rights. People don't realize how, how scary it was. As pastors, everyone's going, whoa. And it was some very key leaders that stepped up from the church and contended for the faith. And they got a lot of criticism for it. Still are getting criticism. Oh, they should just keep their mouths shut. It'll all be okay. Why don't they see how important this is? It was those pastors that pushed the fact that then we were seen as being essential. It's a huge thing. And again, I think that's an example of our time, but that's not exactly what Jude is talking about. In fact, he's very clear that when he's speaking about contending for the faith, it isn't from outside sources, it's from those who have made their way in. In verse 4 he says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most dangerous aspects of false teachers is that they creep in unnoticed. Again, no t-shirt, no sign over their head, no announcement of who they are. They creep in unnoticed. They're playing the long game. 
And it is subtle and it's slow. I talked to somebody after service and they, they were describing this same thing taking place in a church that they went to. This guy came in, hung out with all like the, the college age teenage people, got in good with them, got in good with their families. And when the church leadership went, wait a second, who are you and what are you doing here? By then he left with half the church. And that's very often the way it runs, right? They sneak in unnoticed. Though they're unnoticed by people, they are not unnoticed by God. They're seen. And I think a good example of this kind of mentality and how subtle it can be is Judas Iscariot. Now, we look at it, of course, we're on the other side. We read through the Gospels, we're like, Judas, he's the bad guy. And even when you watch, like, kids' cartoons or in... in uh, children's Bibles, they'll have like all the disciples lined up and they're all nice and happy. And then there's Judas in a black cloak with the hood down. And whenever he speaks, he's like, ah, 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 ah. And they're like, oh, that's Judas, man. That's a bad guy. I don't think Judas was like that at all. Judas sounded very spiritual. Remember at the dinner when, when the woman had poured out that expensive perfume and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why is this perfume not being sold and the money given to the poor. And nobody corrects him. Everyone's kind of like, whoa, good point, Judas. Man, you care about people. And it wasn't until the end, it wasn't until after everything went down that they went, Judas was the one the whole time. He was the one in charge of the money because he was a thief. He was the one taking advantage because he was a liar. But while he was there, man, he looked like he was the real deal. Now, here's the other thing, and this is important when it comes to God's perspective of Judas, right? Jesus was reaching out to Judas more than the others in some ways. He was right there for all of Jesus' teaching. He was right there for all of Jesus' miracles. He was right there at the Last Supper. In fact, at the Last Supper, if you look at the way it's described, and the guys were arguing earlier who would be on his right hand, who was on his right hand? It's Judas. The place of honor was given to Judas. And even when Judas showed up in the garden that night to betray him with an army, he said, friend, why have you come? But even Jesus then was saying, you are my friend. From his perspective, he gave every opportunity for Judas to not do what he was going to do. But Judas had become so hardened, he would not change his course. Not that God was withholding the ability to change, he just simply wouldn't change. Ungodly men, man, they're changing the grace of God into lewdness. This is, it's that same thing. The warning is, is going out to them that if they continue down that path, there's a place where their hearts are going to grow too hard. And then they take something beautiful like grace, and they change it into an excuse for sin. The word for lewdness there means an unbridled lust, that it has absolutely no restraint on it whatsoever. And, and so they take grace and go, we're under grace, man. I can do whatever I want. And I've heard that from people. Hey, if we're really saved by grace, well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what sin I commit. I'm under grace, right? Free card. I can do whatever I want. They do not understand grace. They're simply using it as an excuse. Uh, I mentioned the Gnostics last week. There's this group who had already begun a really fast rise about the same time that this was written. And the Gnostics started off with a wrong idea and they just went worse. 
And their idea was is that Jesus was never in physical form, that all things spiritual are holy, all things physical are sinful. And so Jesus couldn't have been in physical form because that would have made him unholy, right? But then they went to this even worse extreme where they went, well, if all things are spiritual and, all, and the other side is all things being physical, they're completely separated. So it doesn't really matter what we do in the physical realm. So they would have parties and get in all this sin and they're like, doesn't matter because it's physical. Only the spiritual will remain after this. And so they used it again as an excuse. Now they were way off track. They weren't just a little bit off. They went way off. But it started off just a few degrees off, right? This direction that they went along with the people that Jude is describing here, what they're doing is without remorse and without repentance. And so therefore they're never seeking forgiveness. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Always trying to bring him down to make him something less than God or less than the only Savior. They deny him as God altogether. They really create God in their own image. And, and I'm sure we've all had this conversation with somebody when they go, you know what? I don't think God is like the God in the Bible. I think that God is really like whatever they say after that, they're describing themselves. It's like they're looking in a mirror. I think God is, is super into this and super into that. Well, it's all the things that they're super into. They're creating God in their own image. The God that they're worshiping is themselves. Again, these creep in unannounced and unnoticed. This is not to make us paranoid. This isn't to have us constantly on, this, on guard. Because the other part that churches do is that they're like, well, okay, we are pretty familiar with everybody here, and so therefore it's us four and no more. We don't need anybody new. We don't want anybody new. If they come in, we'll make them feel unwelcome because they just might be false teachers, right? That's not what we're supposed to do at all. He's not saying that we're, we're to fall for these things. We're just supposed to be aware of them. And also to understand that no church is immune to them. The churches back then weren't immune. The churches today are not immune. In fact, the larger the church is, the more of a risk it becomes. And he gives three examples as, as warnings of what these false teachers are like or things that they have in common with these examples. So the first is Israel when they were brought out of Egypt uh, in Numbers 14. said, The Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Um, it's interesting because it's easy to look at the example of Israel, really anywhere in the Old Testament, but it's certainly with the, the exodus out of Egypt, and look at them and go, what is wrong with those people? Why don't they just believe? Look at all that God has done for them. But here's the thing. We're exactly like them. I'd like to say we're different, but we're not. And the interesting thing is, if you read the entire story of not only the exodus out of Egypt, but up to the promised land, and, and then they're, all of their wanderings in the, in the wasteland and in the desert, there's one common thing, and it's that they complained constantly. Even in the good things, they complained, right? Moses shows up and says, hey, guys, um, God told me to come, and he's going to set you all free. And they're like, we don't believe you. And he's like, no, seriously, I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. So he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes him make more bricks, and then they're mad at Moses, and that goes on for a while. And, and then he says that the, the plagues are coming, and he tells them, hey, be ready, this plague's coming. They complained about all of it, all the way through. 
And, and here God does all of these miraculous, amazing things in delivering them out of Egypt. And, and not only did he just get them out, he got them out and they were wealthy when they left. That's one of these little tiny notes that people miss. It's easy to miss that. They ended up sacking all of Egypt, which had incredible wealth because each household wanted their, their servants and the, the slaves of Egypt out so bad, they just gave them stuff. Here, take this gold. Go ahead. Well, the, all of them did that thinking they were the only ones doing it, but everybody did it. And so when Egypt left, they left with all the gold, and all the money, and all the stuff, right? And then he takes them to the Red Sea, and he takes them through the Red Sea and out the other side. And then he takes them to, the, the, to Mount Sinai, where he speaks to them from the mountain. Then he takes them to the border of the promised land, intending to take them in. But they're unsure. So they're like, oh, we'll send in spies. They send in spies. Ten of them come back with a bad report. And they're like, no, nope, that's it. We're not going to do it. But again, think. All that God had done before that. All the ways he had shown his faithfulness to them. His love for them. His provision for them. And then he takes them to this new land. And they're like, I don't think we can trust this guy. I don't think we can trust God. It isn't that they didn't believe in his existence. It's that they didn't believe in his faithfulness. And so that entire generation, all but two, would die in the desert. Even after all that God had done for them. Sad. Now the next, and this actually came up a few weeks ago in our question and answer about the angels, or part of this came up. So the second example in verse 6 says, And the angels did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Angels were created for heaven. They were created to be in the presence of God Almighty all the time. That was their place. That was their proper abode. You know, this place that we're like, man, I can't wait to be done with this world and be in heaven. That's where they were created. It's what they were created for. That was their proper domain. Their proper abode was that place. But Lucifer rebelled, and he got a third of the angels to rebel with him. Most of them were cast to the earth. Some of them were put into the abyss under lock and key, and we don't know why. And some people say, well, these were the really bad demons that got locked up. They weren't worse than the devil. You know, I don't know why they got locked up, but they did. And we'll see that more in Revelation when the abyss is open and they come out. If you remember when Jesus was casting the demons out of Legion, and, and the demons beg him to not cast them into the abyss. And so he shows mercy on them and throws them in to the pigs, right? So this is what what Jude's referring to, that they're under lock and key. It doesn't mean all of them, but some of them are reserved in darkness. And this, this came to me during first service, and I know it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I, just, I think it's a cool little thing to think about. When Jesus was there with Legion, and those demons, and again, we don't know how many there actually were. A legion's a thousand, but we don't know it was a thousand. It was a lot. And these demons are calling out, begging Jesus not to throw them into the abyss. I just had this thought one day and realized he knew every one of them. He remembered the day each one of them was created in heaven. 
and that their purpose was for something so much better. Their abode, their dwelling place was meant to be so much more. And the rebellion not only had taken them low, but was going to take them lower. Jude brings this out for a couple reasons. When it comes to the demons, they made a choice. And that choice that they made, there was a point where there was no returning from it. See, for us, it's a matter of faith to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, because we've never seen either one of them. They didn't need that because they were created in his presence. They saw him all the time. And when they chose to rebel, there was a point where there was no coming back, the point of no return. And for us, for mankind, uh, certainly one of those is death. If a person lives an entire life of evil, but in their last moment repents and, and receives Christ, they will be saved. It's like the thief on the cross, right? That's grace. That's mercy. But if they do not repent, they've passed the point of no return, right? They've stepped out of this life into the next one, and that's it. There's no repenting after that. Like the angels not having a point after their decision. But there's also the warning, we find several places in Scripture, that there is a point, I believe this is the warning to the false teachers that Jude's talking about, is that there's a point, their heart is going to be so hardened by what they're doing, by what they're teaching, they're going to pass a point of no return. Not that salvation is held back from them, they're just not ever going to seek it. They're not going to seek forgiveness. They're not going to seek because they won't repent. And we see that with Pharaoh, right? When Moses goes to Pharaoh, in that whole story, we see, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And then again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the last one says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He chose his direction. And at some point, God went, that's the way you want to go? Go. Very stern and serious warning. Now, the last in verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities around them in similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering vengeance of eternal fire. While Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns were known for sexual immorality, Ezekiel chapter 16 tells us the other reason that they were destroyed. That wasn't the only one. It was one of them. The other reason was is that they were a prosperous, wealthy area, all those towns, and they had become self-centered and thought nothing of the poor and the needy. And, and we see that even when Abraham and Lot are talking about who's going to take the cattle, who wants to the, which way do they want to go, and Lot looks at the area of Sodom and Gomorrah and goes, that's it, that's a spot, right? Plenty to graze from. Well, it was a, a very wealthy area. But in their wealth... All the blessings that they had, they were not thankful to God. In fact, they became more self-centered. They did not think of the needy, and they chased after sin rather than chasing after God. Now, and along with this, they wouldn't, they wouldn't hear the warnings they were given. They didn't hear Lot. They wouldn't listen to the angels. And their short season of sin and pleasure and wealth ended with eternal judgment. Again, Jude's point is not so much about Sodom and Gomorrah or about the angels or about Israel. He's using these as an example. 
And in verse 8, he ties it together saying, likewise, in other words, just like these three examples, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. And this is the area where it really starts to look like 2 Peter, especially chapter 2. Starts using some of the same terms. When he speaks of uh, these things, again, for Israel, man, they saw proof of God's love. They saw proof of God's faithfulness. Yet they chose to go their own way. Choose not to believe that God would take care of them and be faithful. Angels, they were created for something so much better and they chose rebellion. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were so blessed, but they were caught up in selfishness and given over to their own sin. And in the like manner, just like these, these false teachers, these false prophets have these false teachings that they don't want to submit to authority, they don't want to do anything, they're only doing it to uh, feed their own flesh. And we talked about that they speak evil of dignitaries. This was the same term that was used in 2 Peter. Uh, the word dignitary there means angel. And it can either mean uh, a fallen angel or a not fallen angel. It doesn't matter. The point is the same, is that these people are speaking of things, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're talking about angels and demons. They're talking about supernatural events. Maybe they're trying to cast out or appear to cast out demons. Whatever they're doing, it's all for show. They don't even know what they're talking about. I think of the, the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. One of my favorite stories. You don't read about that in too many like children's stories, but where they tell the demon, hey, we cast you out in the name of, Paul, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demon says, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? And then whips them, <laughs> strips them naked and kicks them out into the street. They, these guys, same way. They're trying to talk about supernatural events, and they have no idea what it is that they're really talking about. Now, in this, and Jude's going to get to this as we get in the second half, for us, it it's, should be pushing us to understand how much more we need Jesus, right? The more that we're closer to him, the more we understand his character and his personality, then, man, this, these false counterfeits just become more and more obvious. So before we go on, any questions? Exactly. Carolina. Oh, oh um, yeah, the, the going in the way of Korah. Got to find which verse that is now. Uh, it's the end of verse 11, saying that uh, they have run greedily in the area of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a guy that came against Moses and was pretty convincing. And so he started saying well, that he was the one that was in charge and he should lead. And so they, uh, the Lord instructed Moses to kind of set up a test. And part of that was that they were each to take uh, a staff and whichever staff bloomed would be the one that God had chosen, right? So that Aaron's staff was the one that was brought out and it bloomed with these blossoms. And uh, then the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his whole family. So there was no question after that. There was no recount to be done. <laughs> but that's kind of the idea. It's like these guys are saying, hey, we're in charge. We're the ones you should follow. They're going the same way as Korah. They're, they're trying to keep people away from 
godly leadership, but they're leading them all towards destruction, right? So good question. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it at all. We're pretty used to <laughs> We're pretty used to distraction, and we're glad you're here. So no worries at all. All right, anything else before we go on? All right, verse 22. Excuse me, wow, I'm way off. Verse 12, the old eyes, not always working. Okay, verse 12 says, these are spots in your love feast. They, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackest of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all, their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. Their mouths, they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. As Jude gets into this, he just snaps. I mean, there's no other way. He just goes off on these guys. He just starts this rampage of like, and this is what they do, and this is what they're like. And rather than go through all of those, the idea is the same with each, that they are impressive, empty, and useless. In fact, where he talks about they are wandering stars, it's the idea of a comet, that there's a big flash and they're gone. It's, we call it a flash in the pan. And with each one of those, they look impressive. They look almost intimidating, but they're empty and, and going nowhere. In fact, they are taking us off course. And then Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. He actually referred to it earlier, and now he quotes from it. Um, and this is a, people make a big deal about this. The book of Enoch is, is interesting. And in this time that Jude wrote this, uh, it was also very controversial then, because while it has some historical value, 
it also has a lot of myth and fable. And even back in the day when they like canonized the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish scholars of the day went, well, this has some value, but we don't see it as being inspired scripture. That there were parts of it that were like, they were even looking at it going, I just can't buy that, right? There's fables, there's different things. Some prophecies are so clear that they're like, that had to be written after. I mean, where some of these events took place so, so clearly. So they looked at it like, okay, it's important. And it was a book held in high regard, but it was not seen as scripture. And so the fact that Jude quotes from it, some people make a big deal about that. Oh, Jude's validating the book of Enoch. No, he's just quoting something that everybody would have known in this, this day. Paul does the same thing where he quotes different Roman and Greek poets and philosophers. Uh, he's not saying, well, this is someone you should follow. He's just like, hey, this is the truth that they touched on. In Jude's case, again, he's not saying, hey, the book of Jude's great. He's saying, look, these guys have been around since, since Enoch. <laughs> these th- same teachers, these same people, these same deceivers, been warned about since the very beginning. Now, as he goes down this whole list, he, he finally gets to what are we supposed to do about it, right? Like I said, we're not supposed to be paranoid. We're not supposed to be doing some sort of witch hunt looking for, for false teachers. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, he starts in verse 17. Remember the words of the apostles. Get into the word of God. Man, as we take in the word of God, we learn the reality of who Jesus is. We learn his character, and then as the Holy Spirit solidifies those truths in our hearts, then, man, it just becomes more real that we're able to stand upon it. Again, this shouldn't blindsight us. And and it really is, Jude writes that, he says, you know, the apostles told us this. The, The further we go, the closer to the end times we get, the more mockers will be on the scene. The more people will serve themselves and cause division within the church. But verse 19 is key not having the Spirit. They're not saved. These aren't people that wrestle with biblical truth. These aren't people that have big questions but can't resolve them. There's lots of us that have those same things. These are people that are coming in specifically to draw people to themselves, but they are not saved. They do not have the Spirit. Verse 20 again points to us, but you, beloved, building yourself upon your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. But you, but you be in the Word, and on that foundation of the Word, let your faith be built. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's how our faith grows. It isn't by seeing miracles, and we see that with Israel, right? Israel saw all those amazing things, still didn't believe a thing. It's only as we take in the Word of God, we test it, and we find it to be true over and over again. I know I've shared this before, but for Candy and I, a pinnacle moment in our early Christian walk was we had uh, been in church. They talked about tithing, the importance of tithing. And I was always just like, oh, I'm not giving any money to church. You know, I just, you know, tight fisted. But then afterwards, we're like, okay. So God says in the Bible, test me on this. Let's test him. And, and that same time, we had the exact amount we could either pay our rent, tithe, or buy groceries. But we couldn't do all three. And we decided, let's tithe and see what happens. 
our rent got covered, and we're like, wow, that's cool. And then our friends, which we had not said a word about this to anybody, our friends showed up and goes, okay, this is going to sound really weird, and we don't want to come across weird, but this is just weird. We were at the grocery store, and God told us to buy you groceries. And so we just walked through the store and went, do they need that? And he'd say yes or no, and then we go, they need that? And, and they showed up not only with groceries, but exactly what we were out of. Test me in this, right? But that was a huge moment where our faith grew. But it's like that with everything. Bible tells us we're to forgive. And we go, okay, forgiveness sounds good until somebody wounds us and we actually have to do it. And then we're like, ha, 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 ha. But then you do it and you see it work. It says to love people who are hard to love. It says to humble yourself, repent, confess, make yourself accountable. These are all hard. And with each one of them, as we do it, we find him faithful and our faith grows, right? This is remembering the words of the disciples. It's getting into the word and it causes us to have to be more dependent on the Holy Spirit with each one. Not less. Not like the more we grow, we're like, yeah, I got this. I don't need you. Thank you very much. It's the more you do it, the harder these things seem to get, the closer you've got to get to the Holy Spirit to do them. Because it isn't just the instruction. We need the empowerment to do it, right? And so we're finding ourselves just praying for the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit, asking for the gifts, asking for all these things, that we might do the things that we're called to do including share with other people. And I love how he, Jude ends with this because we want some like formula, like how do we share the gospel with people? And there's plenty of things out there that will tell you this is the right formula. Actually, Jude has the only formula. It's that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Some, we show compassion. We just pour out the love of Jesus. And some, I've found it, it's, often not at the times I expect. There have been times where I've had people come at me in a very aggressive way. Man, they want to fight. They want to argue. And they're just like, Rah. well, in my flesh, I don't mind that. Let's do it, right? And, and the Holy Spirit is like, no, show compassion. And it's the gentle word that turns away wrath. And so this person that looked like they were so aggressive, by showing compassion, you just see them break. Because the Holy Spirit knows what they need. Other people who are all nice and sweet and always have the merry sunshine face on, but man, they are sticking the knife in. Maybe it's time to amp it up with those, right? But again, it's by the leading of the Holy Spirit to go, no, there is a place that on some show compassion, making that distinction between. Doesn't mean that you show compassion on everybody. It's not always just pouring out the, the mercy and the love of Jesus. Others, save with fear pulling them out of the fire. And again, this was my buddy, the, the tank commander. He saved by fear, right? And, and he was a successful at it. But there are times where I've told people, if you keep going this way, you're going to destroy your life, your family, and you're going to become hardened against the truth. You've got to change your direction. I'm begging you, change your direction because destruction is what's next. There's nothing wrong with when led by the Spirit, to speak a word of warning to save with fear. Now, while he's put 
a lot towards us. This is what we get to do. It's not a have to. It's what we get to do to be in the word, to build our faith, to keep ourselves in the love of God. He makes it clear in verse 24 who's actually doing all the work. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his holy or of his glory with exceeding joy. Man, you know, that's a cool thing for us to remember. That the day we stand before God in heaven is a day of his joy. He's not going to be there going, well, it's about time. Do you know how much trouble you were? You know how many angels I had to have on you all the time, right? It's going to be joy. Man, this is what we've been working for this very moment right now. And you have entered into your rest and you are in the kingdom. Exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Man, whatever we're facing, whether that is a great time, you might be living a great time, you know, right now. Candy and I have talked about the season we're in right now. It's like the best. We're having such a good time with the Lord, with each other, just in ministry. Everything's going so well. But it's still important for us to know that he's the source of all of that. But it also might be a really hard time that you're facing right now, and it doesn't matter because he's still the one who's able to keep you from stumbling. He's still the one that desires not only to get you through, but to get you all the way home and present you with absolute exceeding joy before his throne, man. He's got good plans now and great plans for the future. Amen? Amen. Any questions? All right, let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your love for us. And we pray, Father, that you would just continue to work these things out in our lives, that we would be people drawing even closer to you this week, and that you would show us where we need to contend for the faith, where we need to stand up and or just to show the great love of Jesus. Lord, that you would give us opportunity to contend for the faith this week and that we would do it in love, in joy, and representing you well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.